This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA and speak to journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English Language Service. How are you, Paul? I'm doing great, Matt, and I'm looking forward to discussing a really complex but exciting topic. This week, we examine the impact of the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. That was some of the sounds of chaos in Afghanistan in recent days. Gunfire from Taliban trying to disperse a protest in the eastern city of Jalalabad a couple of days after the Taliban seized power. But our topic takes us beyond Afghanistan's borders, Matt. Later, we'll be discussing with the help of RFA Uyghur Service Director Alim Setop what the change may mean to minority Uyghur Muslims, both in Afghanistan and China. Uyghurs are already bearing the brunt of internment and repression by Beijing as part of a purported campaign to stamp out extremism, a campaign for which rights activists have another description, genocide. But first, we examine how the lightning power grab by the Taliban could empower radical groups in Southeast Asia, like Jamaat Islamaya. People are burnt everywhere. There's an LPG container, there's people dead, there's everything. Our parents are going to be freaked. Thank God I'm okay, thank God Jill's okay. I just don't believe what happened here tonight. You were just hearing a chilling soundtrack to the aftermath of the 2002 Bali nightclub bombings that killed more than 200 people in Indonesia. It was Southeast Asia's deadliest terror attack and was perpetrated by JI. JI is an Al-Qaeda-linked group whose leaders had cut their terrorist teeth in Afghanistan. So could the Taliban redux provide succor or inspiration to groups like JI? To discuss this, I'm joined by Zakaria Busa, a scholar specializing in Southeast Asian political and security issues and an authority on the region's jihadist movements. He's a professor at the National War College in Washington, D.C., and an adjunct at Georgetown University. Welcome, Zach. Thank you very much for having me. So this week, you wrote a great analysis for Banar News, which is affiliated to RFA suggesting that the return of the Taliban could revitalize terrorist networks in Southeast Asia. And you looked at recent history to come to that conclusion. Can you talk us through it a bit? Sure. Um, The ties between Southeast Asian militants and Afghanistan are deep and longstanding. Um, This is uh, the, the group that perpetrated the Bali bombing in 2002 and, and waged that you know, decade-long campaign in Indonesia, uh, got started in Afghanistan. They were veterans of the Mujahideen. Uh, they had been trained in al-Qaeda camps in Afghanistan. And we had the flow of al-Qaeda trainers from Afghanistan dispatched to the southern Philippines, where they trained and set up satellite camps for al-Qaeda in the region. We know that Hambali was uh, tied there to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, who uh, called for the Bali attacks. When Mohammed Atef, al-Qaeda's number three leader, was uh, killed by the Americans, uh, they found all sorts of evidence in his home, 
about JI's plans for different attacks in Southeast Asia. So you can't really separate the history of terrorism uh, from Afghanistan. Now that said, we can't overblow it. The reality is that JI is a much different organization than it used to be. By 2011, it stopped being a militant organization. Uh, there had been hundreds and hundreds of arrests throughout Southeast Asia. Much of the Al-Qaeda leadership based in Afghanistan had been captured. So we really don't know much about how those ties continued, especially as Afghanistan was in a very different place after 9-11. After 2014, we also have to remember that the pendulum swung towards the Islamic State. And so what emerged out of the ashes of J.I. starts to gravitate more to Iraq and Syria, uh, and they are joining the Islamic State and trying to support uh, the conflict there. And the Islamic State has really carried the mantle in Southeast Asia since then in trying to get local militants to carry on and expand in the battlefield. The real concern, of course, is that J.I. has never renounced violence. And in fact, since 2011, the Indonesian government has given them a lot of space to regroup. They have been able to run their network of madrasas, uh, their mosques. They have a network of charities, businesses, publishing houses. They're quite strong. They just have not been conducting acts of violence. And many fear that they are simply uh, biding their time to, uh, for the opportune moment to regroup and, and strike again. Can I ask you, um, Zach, so Jemais Lemaya, J.I., do they still go by the same name? Are there still the, the same personnel who are, are sort of circulating in the organization? Um, there are some that are from that first generation of J.I. And in fact, Indonesia um, this past year has arrested some of the, the last at-large figures. But largely it's passed to a second generation of leaders. And yes, they still use that name and the same organizational structure. So why do you think we should be fearful that J.I. could sort of reemerge as a terrorist organization? and draw some sort of inspiration or training from Afghanistan? What, what could the future look like? Well, I don't want to overstate what Afghanistan could mean operationally for any militant in Southeast Asia. We, we just don't know yet. Uh, we don't know if the Taliban will live up to their promise to not allow the country to be a, a terrorist safe haven again. I, I have my doubts, but they did make public commitments. But it's certainly a morale booster for militants anywhere in the world, including Southeast Asia. Um, we need to think, you know, what this means. If, if the Taliban can fight not just the Soviet Union and, and the United States, you know, what it means for groups in Southeast Asia to take on their own apostate corrupt regimes that they believe are propped up by the United States and the West. 
are there any particular region or countries in the region where you see those threats could loom largest? Well, obviously, Indonesia has the largest uh, network of terrorist groups. I find it very telling, and this is kind of going back to an earlier question you asked about why I'm concerned about JI. Um, the Indonesian security forces have really started to take the threat posed by JI seriously again. In 2019, they arrested the leader of the group. And I think they were quite taken aback uh, by the size of the organization, its durability, the uh, resources it had at its disposal, all the different mechanisms of fundraising. And since then, we have seen a very concerted effort by security forces in trying to dismantle the group. In fact, just in the past two weeks, some 45 members of JI have been arrested. Now, at the same time, they're arresting members of the pro-Islamic state groups as well. But again, JI hasn't staged a terrorist attack since 2011. So I think it, it is telling about the Indonesian concern that JI's networks are uh, very robust and that they are simply there to pick up the pieces uh, of a much weakened uh, Islamic State network in Indonesia. At the end of your article, you also touch on something else, which I think is on people's minds, about how the withdrawal from Afghanistan by the United States could hurt the standing of the United States in the wider world. What sort of impact do you think that could have on in Southeast Asia? I could argue this both ways, right? On the one hand, it gives America more resources to stand up to its treaty obligations and commitments in regions of the world that are actually very important to us economically. Japan should not be concerned about the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. They should actually feel better about it. Same with South Korea or other treaty allies. But it certainly is something that the Chinese are trying to play up, right? They're trying to sow seeds of doubt. We see the Global Times uh, a warning the Taiwanese uh, see the Americans are an unreliable partner. You, you shouldn't rely on them. And I, I think the Chinese do this very effectively throughout Southeast Asia. They're very good at getting their message, at getting Xinhua uh, feeds into local media in both English language and Chinese language press throughout Southeast Asia. So I think this is something they're really trying to hammer home. And yet they should be concerned about Afghanistan. They have their own concerns about uh, traditionally Uyghurs uh, and members of ETIM, the East Turkestan independence movement, uh, having been trained by the Taliban in the past. The Chinese are obviously very insecure about instability in Xinjiang province and should worry that there will be spillover effects. I know that Foreign Minister Wang Yi recently met with the Taliban delegation um, and uh, the Taliban have pledged not to allow uh, Etsum into their territory um, in return for Belt and Road Initiative projects and, and other support that 
China could offer them, but we'll see. Yeah, there are many things to be um, to be decided and to to shake out in the weeks and months ahead, and that includes China's involvement in Afghanistan and its relationship with the Taliban and the role of the U.S. in in the wider region. Zach, thank you very much for joining us on Eyes on Asia. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks to Zach Abuza for his insight on how the Taliban's rise may impact Southeast Asia. Now we turn to China and the potential fallout for the minority Uyghur population. I spoke to Alim Setaf of RFA's Uyghur service, who told us about the fears Uyghurs have that the Taliban will support Chinese oppression of the Uyghurs in exchange for diplomatic recognition, investment, and economic assistance. Some analysts and uh, some Uyghurs in exile, they're concerned that China may become the first country to recognize the Taliban because the Chinese government has been basically also advising other countries that uh, the international community should look at Taliban in a very rational way. They are not the same Taliban that they were 20 years ago. And uh, for some analysts that China is hoping to invest uh, in Afghanistan and also helping Afghanistan to rebuild after Taliban's takeover. Uh, some analysts even believe that China wants to do this because it's part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. China can go through directly from Afghanistan to Iran and to Turkey instead of from you know, Russia control, if not influenced, Central Asian route to those countries. And uh, Uyghur activists also believe once China recognizes uh, the Taliban government as a legitimate government of Afghanistan, there might be a domino effect of other countries following China's lead and to recognize Taliban as a legitimate government there. I think it remains to be seen how the Taliban regime in Afghanistan fares in getting diplomatic recognition from countries around the world. Western nations are likely to reject it, Paul, unless they, unless kind of against the odds, there's a genuine coalition government that emerges in Kabul. The former Taliban regime that ruled Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001 was only recognized by three governments. That was Pakistan, its, uh, its neighbor to the east, Saudi Arabia, and uh, the United Arab Emirates. But it is very interesting this time around that China's had high-level diplomatic contact with the Taliban before they took power. It indicated that it won't give formal recognition until a government is formed. But I'd say given the engagement, the public engagement, the Taliban before they seize power, it appears only a matter of time before they formally grant that recognition if they get what they want from the Taliban. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I would think that they would drive a hard bargain. Uh, they didn't join the uh, group of countries that recognized the Taliban 20 odd years ago, almost 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they, they're sitting in a seat where they can get what they want from, from the Taliban. Right. I mean, my, my assumption has always been about China, that they'd have very little incentive to have a religious fundamentalist Afghanistan at their border, as it could again become a magnet for international jihadists and become a source of regional, if not global, insecurity. But as you know, we described above, Aleem thinks that Beijing is willing to cut a deal with a, you know, a, a compliant Taliban, and that would bode ill for Uyghurs, including those who 
reside in Afghanistan. We, Paul, are we talking about many people? There are an estimated 2,000 uh, Uyghurs living in Afghanistan, and people just yesterday told us that uh, there are about 80 families in Kabul, and they're hunkering down right now. These people have seeped into Afghanistan over the decades, including some long history, but people that have been there for years and years, part of Central Asia, where there's you know, large nations of, of Turkic uh, Muslims. But it's not a native area. They're not a Turkic people, the, the Afghans, even, even the minorities. But uh, an, another cluster of them escaped from China after a, a massacre in 1997, as, as the first major uptick in violence in Xinjiang in quite a while at that time. And it's, that was sort of the beginning of the winding up of these campaigns of putting more pressure on the 12 million Uyghurs who live inside China in, the, in, the, in Xinjiang. Should we listen to what Alim has to say about this migration of Uyghurs who moved into Afghanistan? Yeah, that would be interesting. And although Afghanistan is technically neighboring the Uyghur region, but it's very small border with high mountain, and also it's controlled by the uh, Chinese security forces. So there is no way Uyghurs can just uh, cross the country, go to Afghanistan, like some media spins. But... Uh, in the 1990s, you know, right before the 9-11, of course, you know, we know in 1997, uh, the Chinese government uh, conducted a, what Uyghurs call a massacre in the city of Bolja, when hundreds of Uyghurs took to streets to peacefully protest against Chinese government's crackdown of traditional Uyghur gatherings, mashup, whatnot. After that, a number of Uyghurs fled to Central Asian countries, some with passports, some without. So then... Uh, when the Taliban took power in Afghanistan, some of these Uyghurs felt, you know, that's the only country they were able to go without requiring a passport, a visa. They could stay there. Hopefully in the future they could go to Turkey or other countries. But they were stuck there, uh, not many of them, of course. Then uh, they were later picked up by the U.S. forces in Guantanamo, all this saga. We know at the end of the day, the U.S. determined that these were not enemy combatants or so-called terrorists that the Chinese government claimed, and they released them to different countries. That's why there are not a big, uh, there is not a big Uyghur population mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. Currently, most of the Uyghurs who live in Afghanistan are the ones who intermarried with Afghans, with others, and the, uh, living there. They're That's worried cool. that the Chinese government is going to target them using Taliban and possibly deport them to China. So, Paul, it's clear from, you know, RFA reporting that Uyghurs inside Afghanistan this week are very nervous about what the future holds for them under the Taliban, and they, they may cooperate with China. Um, China uses as a justification, it seems, the purported threat from the Eastern Turkestan Islamic movement, which in the past is, was listed as a, as a terror group by the United States. China says it remains a major terror threat, but it was actually delisted as a terror group by the Trump administration, I think at the end of last year. The State Department said then that the group hasn't existed for a decade or so. This is what Alim said. The, the U.S. Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, already delisted ETIM as a terror group because... Mm -hmm. According to the U.S. government, there was no such group. Because of the horrible situation now in Afghanistan, the way U.S. pulled out, out of it. So, Paul, 
What do you make of this controversy over the ETIM, which the U.S. says isn't a threat and China says is? Well, uh, China has been accused of treating it as, you know, making a bogeyman of this group. And we have in our reporting at RFA outside of Afghanistan had had China accuse even civilian uh, longstanding lawyer type uh, activists living in Germany, for example, the World Uyghur Congress president as being connected to ETIM. Uh, and I do think that the the Trump administration at the tail end of last year, like you said, they sort of re removed a fig leaf that China was using and waving around. And it, it remains a sensitive issue for the Uyghurs because different countries will follow Chinese requests and marching orders, and it makes it hard for the Uyghurs around the world who are under pressure to begin with to travel because some countries they'll be flagged or that sort of thing. Okay, well, let, let's listen to a little bit more from Alim on how he expects China to amp up this threat and uh, use it as some sort of leverage. Because of the horrible situation now in Afghanistan, the way U.S. pulled out, out of it, the U.S., U.K., the countries that condemn China's genocide of the Uyghurs are now are basically asking China for help to stabilize Afghanistan. So China believes it has leveraged now against U.S., against the European countries. During the first phone call of Secretary Blinken with the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, for example, Wang Yi specifically basically asked the U.S. to also help China crack down on the ETIM. And that was also a precondition when Wang Yi met with Taliban leaders in July that Taliban should help China to crack down ETIM, although this organization does not exist now. So this will flare up more. China will continue to spin the story like China faces an organized Uyghur terror threat against the country. So picking up on what Aline was referring to there, and also what Zach Abusa was saying a bit earlier about how Chinese state media are looking to exploit this situation vis-a-vis -vis Washington. Do you think the Afghan situation, Paul, is going to hurt U.S. standing in Asia? Well, we're seeing a bit of it now in the other part of Asia, down to the south with uh, Vietnam and uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris visiting. And it's, it's certainly an elephant in the room alongside with the other elephant, China, as people have pointed out. Uh, China will try to exploit about everything. They're, they're, they've got a bold kind of wolf warrior diplomacy war going on against the United States. There's a bit of a mismatch because they were matching the tone of the Trump administration uh, in a lot of ways. And, and, and the Biden administration appears more calm and doesn't get involved in bickering uh, online or anything like that the way they do it. Um, but it's, it's hard to say. There's the, the flip side of Afghanistan that sometimes gets overlooked is that you know, for all these 20 years that the U.S. was spending these trillions, China was, you know, getting a degree of security in that unstable part of the world on the backs of the U.S. taxpayer. So now, with that gone, they have some worries to worry about. The, the just general, probably not the Uyghurs per se, because they're really under the state thumb. But, you know, if, if it spins into something wider involving those militant groups up in Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or those areas, they all border China. So there could be you know, degrees of uh, distress for China, but probably they care more about their plans, their sort of Belt and Road Initiative investments. They have mining and, you know, electricity generation and those sort of plans for Afghanistan that require a stable country. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, I for a long time, China was slated to open up 
this massive copper mine, the INAC copper mine, and I don't think that ever properly got off the ground. As, as you say, China never really had skin in the game as regards putting security forces on the ground in Afghanistan. So if they are going to realize ambitions to maybe expand the Belt and Road into Afghanistan, they're going to need a more stable situation on the ground there. And, you know, I think it remains to be seen if that is going to going to happen. You know, I just wanted to add one thing, and that's that, you know, if there is one silver lining in this for Washington, it could be that the one thing that undid the Obama administration's pivot to Asia, that it's preoccupied with, you know, Afghanistan may no longer be an issue. So the strategic focus will truly be on East Asia for the United States. But that is sort of dependent on whether Afghanistan once again becomes a training ground for Al-Qaeda and other um, jihadists or not. Indeed. And we'll see whether things work that way based on how Vice President Harris makes out in Hanoi this week. Indeed we will. Thanks for joining us on Eyes on Asia. You can find past podcasts on platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Just search for Eyes on Asia. And you can read the commentary by Zach Abusa, who we interviewed for this podcast, and see our coverage of the reaction by Uyghur activists to the situation in Afghanistan on rfa.org. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia alongside Paul Eckert. This podcast is edited and the series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again 